The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. The measure of your hero is often the quality of your villain. The better you write your villains, the more your readers will like and believe your story, and the more they will like and believe your hero. And our guest today is an award-winning screenwriter. His first feature film was To End All Wars, and he's also the best-selling author of The Chronicles of the Nephilim and his new series, Chronicles of the Watcher. Brian Gadawa, welcome back to The Christian Publishing Show. Thanks for having me on, Thomas. So first, let's talk about what is and is not a villain. So what is a villain? Aha. Traditionally, in, 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 as authors and writers, we call him the antagonist or he or she the antagonist. Um, but in terms of basic storytelling, you know, the villain is the external enemy, uh, or let's put it this way, the external antagonist for the protagonist. What I mean by that is, is that uh, most good stories are going to have a hero who's driven by a drive in the story. That's what makes a story a story. You know, you want to know what happens next. Well, that's you're only going to want to know what happens next if you've got this hero with this strong drive and I want something more than anything else, that kind of a thing. And um, but every hero is going to have an internal flaw or an internal. Um, antagonist, so to speak. In other words, something lacking in their own character or in the way they see the world that the story is going to be about them overcoming. Now, the the antagonist or the villain is going to be that external foe that also tries to keep the hero from achieving their goal or their drive. So that's sort of the, that's the circular setup that that most good stories are going to have, that that hero with a strong goal, something they want, an inner flaw that's keeping them from getting it, but also an outer enemy that's keeping them from getting it. And that clash is the drama of the story that makes us want to know what happens next. Now, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because that's not always how it is, where the villain is the antagonist. And a good example of this is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. So you have George Bailey, and what does he want more than anything else in the world? He wants to see the world. He wants to build big buildings and do great things. And who's the antagonist? It's his brother, the guy who every time George thinks that he's going to go somewhere, something happens with his brother or with his family and keeps him from going. His brother gets married. His brother gets a good job. His brother goes off to war and wins the gold medal. And the villain, who's Potter is actually trying to help George Bailey. At one point, he's like, George, I'll give you you know, $40,000 a year. You can take your wife to Europe. Wouldn't that be good? He's actually trying to help George Bailey get the one thing that he wants more than anything else. And yet, he's not the antagonist. He is the villain. And the ending is satisfied, despite the fact that Potter doesn't get his comeuppance. Because he's not... Re- it's almost the ultimate insult. <laughs> is that he is forgotten in the story because he ultimately doesn't matter. He's not the antagonist. He's not the protagonist. And he's not the relationship character good point good point there's a there's always a um, there's always a, a, a way to sort of subdivide things and get more complexity in stories so absolutely that's that's totally totally viable and I think that's one of the things that you can play with sometimes is having the antagonist uh, not always the morally evil character yeah. and I guess that's the question do villains do antagonists need to be evil is is um is that what turns an antagonist into a villain is the element of evil how how does that work 
I wouldn't say so. Um, because I mean, in, in many ways, you know, like you pointed out, um, uh, an antagonist, uh, like for instance, uh, Goodwill Hunting, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got these guys, three guys, you know, dealing with these issues and they're all, they're kind of antagonists with each other. But as they, as they struggle through the issue, the, you realize that the antagonism is what helps the, the hero, which, which in that, in that story, it's, you know, basically it's, um, oh, what's his name? Um, <laughs> not Robin Williams. It's the other guy. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but anyway. Um, so yeah, an antagonist can be someone who, who challenges the hero to be a better person. But in many ways, that person is often the, an, an ally who's, who's an, uh, who, you know, who goes along with the hero and the ally challenges the hero in the sense that they may want the same thing, but they see things differently. So, but in generally, you know, and I mean, I would argue too that, uh, Potter is, it does not want what's good for uh for George Bailey Potter wants to control the town and so he wants to control everything so in that sense he he really is a classic villain you know in that sense but um so yeah surely sometimes those things can be separated sometimes not but um yeah so another question is do our villains need to be likable obviously we don't want them to be so distasteful that every time the villain comes on the stage we want to turn the page and skip that section. So how do we make our villains compelling without making their evil compelling? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting question and, and, a, and a good one because, um, the thing about villains is the more realistic you make them, the more human you make them, I would argue, the better villains they are. But that means making, uh, even though they are the person who uh is clashing with the hero um uh and 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 even though we love to have someone that's really evil cuz it sort of a strong clear definition of good and evil does make for a satisfying story on many levels but there's also an element of the the more extreme you may portray that villain the less believable they may be and the less interesting or entertaining they may be and so in some ways if you give that villain um a, a believable, to a, as far as it goes, you know, that if you were to grant their premises, you could understand why they're pursuing this particular course of action, you know, like, um, you know, of course, <laughs> this isn't going to necessarily, you know, be the best example, but you know, you, a lot of these, these movies, you know, whether it's Marvel, Thanatos, or, you know, um, uh, the, you know, these movies were like, well, you know, the, the earth is, is being overpopulated and v- humanity is a virus on the earth and it, we're killing the earth. And so I want to help fight back for the earth and by killing humans, you know, and of course that's still evil. But my point is, is that within the logical realm of their earth worship or their sort of nature worship, it makes logical sense. And, you know, we, there are people like that who could tend towards that direction. So if you just, in other words, or let me put it this way. I think that the first step you have to take in making a good villain is when you write them, you have to, you have to actually step into their shoes and, and realize that no villain in any story thinks they are a villain. And once you realize that, you can be more sympathetic and write them more human, more uh, realistic. And, 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 you know, because 
no one thinks they're evil, right? So, so there is always going to be a justification and it's going to be a moral justification. So you have to figure out in your, you know, in your crafting, if you're the writer, you have to figure out, okay, well then what, what's going to be that, that logic? Let me, let me give you an example. Um, in my, my latest novel, Jezebel, you know, of course, that's the classic biblical story about the most wicked queen in all of history. And, and, um, she's very interesting, very fascinating. And, you know, if you, so you might come at that story and people with, oh, make her this, you know, make her this witchy woman and all this kind of thing. And, and I didn't do that in the story. I, I tried to make her believable. And so rather than having her being this queen who wants to come into Israel and I want to destroy Israel and I want to, you know, uh, harm Israel. No, it's the opposite. She comes from a sophisticated, upper class, rich culture in Tyre, because Tyre was a, you know, at the time it was a cosmopolitan sea trading area, right? So they're rich. They've got their culture. They're kind of like New York or LA, right? And <laughs> when she get, marries Ahab and goes into Israel, Israel is more backwards. They're more rural. And so she's coming in like, um, you know, like, like the person who's, who, who sees, oh, I feel so sorry for these poor people. They don't have any culture. They're poor. They don't know, they don't know any better. I'm going to bring, I'm going to help sophisticate them. I'm going to help cult, bring them culture, you know, that kind of thing. So, so she comes in with the desire to, uh, to better Israel by making them more sophisticated. Where the rub come, what makes her the villain is her worldview is a pagan worldview that believes in God's whom Israel's God had said, do not worship. And so as she brings those in, well, she thinks Baal worship is helpful because Baal is a strong God, you know? So everything she does has a logic to it. If you allow, if you accept her premise of, you know, Baal worship, she's actually good from her perspective. So when you start reading, you know, my story of Jezebel, and this is what I would argue, you know, for, you know, other villains do this in many stories as well. They don't look like bad people necessarily. It's as they progress and you see where they're leading that it really, you end up seeing what it really leads to. So um, that's one way of doing it. Another advantage of crafting your villains this way is it helps your readers better identify evil in the real world, right? Because villains in the real world, they're not twirling their mustaches and, you know, brouhaha in a very sinister way. They, you know, like you said, they see themselves as the heroes trying to make the world a better place. They are the heroes of their own story. And, you know, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And, you know, the essence of the gospel is that your good intentions aren't going to save the world. In fact, your good intentions aren't even going to save yourself, right? Your good intentions ultimately will damn you, right? You need Christ. He's the only way uh, to salvation. And that's um, an important thing to work in, that you don't have to make them comic book characters. And, you know, that's that's even like a a slur on comic books, because comic books actually have really complex uh, villains, often some of the best villains. And a good example of this uh, would be a movie like Batman versus Superman or... um, Captain America Civil War, where you have two quote-unquote heroes that the other hero is the antagonist in their story. And you've got yeah. these parallel stories, and Batman sees Superman as the as the villain, and Superman sees Batman as the villain, or Iron Man and Captain America the same same way. And it, it makes sense, right? You get into their worldview, and Iron Man's like, we got to be kept in check. And Captain America's like, if somebody tells us not to act and we have to act to save the world, then we're doing the wrong thing. We have to be free to do 
uh, what we need to do to make the world a better place. And you know you've gotten it, that balance, if you're trying to do, go for the balanced approach, when your readers are taking sides. But in yeah. Christian fiction, I think you don't really want your uh, readers taking sides. Right? By the time they finish the book, they need to agree that Jezebel was the villain. Right? You don't want to have a faction that's like the pro-Jezebel faction at the end of the book. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, you know, of course, the way you do that is the principle is, uh, here's, how, here's how I see it. And again, everything we're saying here is not absolute. There's always a lot of flexibility and all that and stories. Cause like, for instance, you know, having a really, really strong evil villain, you know, like, like, for instance, the Joker in the Dark Knight, you know, you're talking about Batman. I'm thinking, you know, he literally was just chaos. And that's, you know, he, he was just, symbolic of chaos and and that's what he was promoting and and there but there's a sense in which at least metaphorically or philosophically or symbolically that is a fascinating story for us to watch so you can have extreme characters but you just want to make them consistent within a certain worldview so the joker within his worldview there was a consistency to it, you know. Some men just want to watch the world burn, you know, that kind of thing. So, so the, the other way of, of dealing with it is, you know, you start them out, you show them, uh, where you almost can be rooting for them in a way, or at least you can say, well, I, I actually agree with that one, you know, and then, but then what you do is you show this as the story progresses and as the villain comes into conflict with the hero, then that who they really are and what their, what their beliefs lead to ultimately will expose who they really are. So by the end, and that's why a lot of, you know, stories have the twists at the end, you know, where whether, you know, the maybe sometimes, uh, what am I thinking of? Um, uh, I know it's an old movie. There's more new recent movies, but the, you know, the, the fugitive where, you know, the, the guy who's the bad guy, the cop who's hunting down our hero ends up helping the hero at the end. And, and together they vanquish the real enemy, which is something else. You know, there's that approach as well. But in terms of, 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 uh, um, the, the villain and, and consequences, and all that, uh, one of the ways that I look at stories is I I see the hero as embodying a worldview and the villain as embodying a worldview. And those those essential are where they essentially disagree on on the world, right? So for instance, you know, I have uh, like in my story, you know, Jezebel is, is, you know, she, like I say, she's a pagan. She brings in Baal worship. She thinks sophistication is, is the way to go and, and all that. But then on the other side, I have Jehu, who's a man who's devoted to God. He's devoted to the king and he sees the king being subtly taken in by Jezebel. And, but he can't speak up because Jezebel's not doing anything evil, right? She's just, you know, slowly turning the king. And so, uh, the hero is struggling with this issue of how can I stay true to my king, who I love and, and obey, but also stay true to God, who is the one who told me to obey the king, but he also said, but don't worship Baal. So, um, the hero should have con conflicting values that he's struggling with. And that's why that conflicting value of the villain should be as believable or possible as 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 realistic as possible because you know you have the hero and you have the villain and their worldviews are clashing and the story the outcome of, of the story who wins so to speak in the end is going to show you which worldview is superior as they live those out certain actions and certain moral repercussions result because of those choices based on the worldview and that's how i that's how i kind of see the philosophical uh 
power of storytelling and how a villain is so good because so for instance if i'm a if i'm a person who you know wants to wrestle with the issue of oh say okay so say like the issue of freedom braveheart's one of my favorite movies of all time so say i want to wrestle wrestle with this universal issue of freedom and security though you those are the two opposing values they're both good values but in a very real sense uh you can see well what what do each of those values result in and so william wallace you know the king of england wants to you know take over scotland william wallace wants freedom uh he, he wants scotland to be free and of course the king of england he's the villain he wants um, you know, he wants to control England, but then Robert the Bruce is the antagonist and he's the one who wants to compromise with the king. He wants to have peace, right? So it's like peace and security. So let's compromise. And so the movie, uh, is, is a, is a sort of shows you, well, these are the two ideas, uh, competing for how should we deal with the, the, the king, the, the, you know, the villain and then which view ends up resulting in slavery. Ah, Robert the Bruce, when he gives in and he compromises, the king enslaves people and kills people, right? And uh, William Wallace is the one who wants freedom no matter what. And yeah, freedom comes at a high price. Freedom is not easy, all that stuff. But in the end, freedom is going to be the higher value than security in terms of how do you deal with uh, you know, the, the king and, and with, with your, na- your nation. So this is how you can see how the interplay of the villain, the antagonist and the, and the hero, they, they all have different views. And the, the story is the, is the, the dramatic conflict of those, those views. And whatever, however your story ends is going to tell us what you think the way things ought to be is, which is why I'm a person who's, uh, you know, I do not, uh, there's always a, there's a place for down endings. Tragedy is a very moral story, et cetera. But I wouldn't do unhappy endings just because I don't like happy endings. They're fake. They're not real life. Uh, stories are not real life. Stories are about the way life should be. And so how you conclude your story, how, if the, if, is the villain vanquished or not will be an expression of what you believe the way the world is not only is, but maybe should be. And so those are all these things that are in, inter, at, in interplay there. Yeah, storytelling is a really powerful act because people's experience of your story become kind of their experiences of the world in a sense where you start to shape their worldviews. A lot of our worldviews are not based off of our own experiences. They're based off of the experiences we've seen portrayed in stories. A good example of this is arranged marriage. Chances are you have a very negative view towards arranged marriage and not from anyone in real life that you know who had an arranged marriage and it was a bad outcome. All of your experience of arranged marriage comes from fiction. And yet you have this powerful, visceral, negative reaction to arranged marriage because the fiction stories you've encountered are universally against arranged marriage, despite the fact that if you actually look at the statistics in countries that have both, the people in arranged marriages have longer lasting, happier marriages than the people who do not have arranged marriages. I've talked with people in India who are very advocate and very strong advocates for arranged marriage, and yet it would never fly here because the power of our fiction is so strong that we can't even contemplate the idea or the possibility of an arranged marriage. Now, so we realize that by crafting these villains and crafting these stories, we are shaping the way people see the world. This is a 
really important responsibility when you write a, a story. So what are some mistakes that you see Christian authors making when they craft their villains? Yeah. Um, well, one of them, of course, is when, how can I put this? This is really common for uh, Christian movies, but Christian genre in general, um, dealing with the sin factor. Uh, this is one classic case. Now, you know, I've written in my book, Hollywood Worldviews, about sex and violence and, and sin, depicting sin in stories and in movies in particular, but, you know, it applies for novels as well. And, and, and that issue is, um, how explicit or how detailed to portray the evil that you are fighting. And oftentimes the villain is the one who embodies that evil. So he's part of that package, right? And so, uh, now look, this is a gray area. It's, you know, there's room for debate and such, but I have seen, uh, Christians because of their, uh, their, f whether it's the fear of the audience, cause I know I have to deal with that myself, my, my Christian audience, or just people, Christians who, you know, reading stories or watching movies, they, they, they will, they will reject, um, some of the more explicit extreme cases of sin. And I would argue that sometimes you need to show the evil that you're dealing with or, or the, the villain won't be believable because people in the real world know that, you know, the evil out there is real. You know, so say, for instance, if you're dealing with child molestation, you know, how much do you show? And of course there's legal issues and moral issues. I realize that. Um, but to not, in terms of not dealing with those things, not having those things, you know, um, my movie to end all wars was a true story of what the allied prisoners of war suffered under the Japanese in world war two. And so are you not going to show that suffering because it's just too offensive and, and you can't, people can't handle it. Or do you show it because it's important that people understand? I mean, you know, we're talking about, they treated they treated the prisoners like Nazis treated Jews, you know, so it was really horrible tortures and all this kind of stuff. And of course we had a limit to which we, what we would show. So you're, like I said, everyone struggles with this, but the desire. So here's the problem I came into, I came across. I will say though, you did get an R rating on that film. It's, it's one of the few R rated Christian movies. Yeah. And, and well, but here's the thing though. And we also had a lot of cussing in it and the cussing was the, and I, you know, um, I realize this isn't necessarily specifically a part of the villain, but I think it's part of that package, the sin element, you know, and how evil do you show people, you know? I mean, if, if we would have not showed them depicted their suffering accurately or their, their, you know, violent response to it, then the gospel message would have not have had power in that story. So we had the cussing going on and all this kind of stuff. Well, what happened was we couldn't get any Christians, uh, companies that would want to help distribute it. So, and, and look, I understand there are market issues and all that kind of stuff. And if the people won't buy it, they're not going to provide for them. I realize that. And we actually tried to get a PG-13 rating, but because the realism, the violence was so realistic, we even cut back the violence and we couldn't get a PG-13, right? So th yeah, those are the issues we're struggling with. But here's my thing is that like, if you're going to, you know, imagine like, how can you accurately depict the evil that is out there in the world that will that will inspire people to stand up and, and do something, to stand up and fight evil, to stand up and, and if you don't depict it accurately, uh, 
And um, that's what I see. So sometimes I see, you know, Christian movies and their depiction of bad guys is like something out of the 1970s tele- bad television. And I'm a Christian and I don't believe it because... I don't believe what they're saying, and I'm a Christian, <laughs> because they're not sh- depicting truth accurately. They're not depicting the sin, the evil, accurately. Now, does this mean, you know, oh, therefore, show everything? And you know, No, of course not. You know, we have to wrestle with those issues. Yes, I realize that. But that's probably one of the biggest issues is that the, the evil that they're doing, a lot of times in Christian work, you have to hide it. You have to only imply. And, and I do a lot of impl- implying in my work. Don't get me wrong. I do. I don't feel like you need to do every explicit detail, but sometimes, sometimes there's a moment, that moment here or there where you have to show or depict that sin or that evil that the villain's doing. So that it hits the person's spirit truly how real this evil is and how we must truly fight it. Otherwise, your, your redemption is not going to be believable. And putting on my marketing hat here, because I, I uh, work with authors a lot when it comes to positioning their books. This is, I feel like, the biggest difference between Christians who write books and, quote, Christian books. So if you think of Christian books as a market— and um, there's Christian publishers who sell through Christian bookstores to a specific kind of Christian audience. That audience is expecting a very low depiction of evil in the in the book. And if you depict evil very explicitly, you're going to um, offend their expectations the same way you would if you had a romance that ended with a couple not together at the end of the yes. movie, right? Yes. There's an expectation, or at the end of the book, right? There's an expectation, almost a genre promise that certain elements are going to be included and certain elements will be excluded. And a quote Christian book excludes those elements. And and you're you're very valid in the fact that, you know, it does or it can undermine the story, right? You see evil portrayed very explicitly in the Bible, right? Like the Bible's not afraid to depict that. It doesn't glorify it, but it does depict it. But the Christian market, the kind of, and these are mostly fundamentalist um, consumers that have a very conservative worldview, and you're not going to change them. There's a lot of people who are like, I want to write edgy Christian books. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> you're going to, well, you may write them, but no one's going to buy them, right? If you're going to write an edgy book, write a secular book. Be a Christian who writes a secular book. There are, you know, very successful fantasy authors who happen to be Christian and you can see the worldview impact in their books. I'm, I, for some of them, I'm big fans of their writing, but I also see why these aren't labeled or packaged as Christian books because they'd be very offensive. Uh, to a Christian audience. And and navigating that is tricky and it requires you to really know your target audience. And and look, as a as a Christian author with a Christian audience, I've had to I've had to sort of rein in my own sort of freedom and pride, you know, because when I first started with my Chronicles of the Nephilim, I'm like, you know, I don't care with you Christians can't handle the violence in the Bible, then that's your problem because I'm I'm putting all the evil that was in this world in, in you know in there. And I wrote it, but then after after a while I real started realizing, well, you know what? Yeah, I even if I'm right, if I want to help these people to grow in their understanding, whatever, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to pull back and come up with more creative ways and try to, you know, maybe hold their hand and bring them into seeing things, you know, step by step. And, and that's why, you know, what I did is, is, 
in uh, Hollywood Worldviews is the book that I wrote to help uh, Christians in particular really be able to watch movies with more discernment rather than just throwing the baby out of the bed. Oh, I hate the sex and violence, so I don't watch anything. Or, well, I am free in Christ, so I can watch everything. It's like, no, there's a middle ground there that you have to watch intelligently and discerningly. And one of the things that I, I, I'm, I've made it my own, you know, sort of one of my ministries is to communicate to the body of Christ of really realizing how much violence and sex and, and language is actually in the Bible. And that if they really do, uh, accept that in the Bible, they've got to realize that maybe they're being a little too harsh on their standards of other things. So I go through passages like, you know, I go through, uh, 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 the Song of Solomon, which like, you know, the English translators actually were prudes. The Hebrew of, of that book, Song of Solomon is very sexual, very explicit. And so there's a problem even there with English translators, right? And there are cases of violence that are just so excessive and it's described. Now, not all, all the details always described, right? But certain key elements like, you know, uh, you know, just certain beheadings and certain murders of, of people are shown in detail in the Bible, as well as profanity. There are moments in the Bible where we read blasphemy. Now, yes, it's out of the mouths of someone like Satan, but the blasphemy is there. And I've heard Christians say, well, you know, I can handle some, some violence and, uh, sexual Sexuality a little bit, uh, you know, in, in movies, but not the Lord's name in vain or not blasphemy as if, as if that's like, uh, some kind of special sin that shouldn't be, uh, portrayed either. But the problem is, is the Bible depicts all kinds of people blaspheming God and it describes their blasphemy. And of course, the key here is it's not about justifying the depiction of sin. The point is, is you've got to accurately depict sin, sin so that your redemption has the power that you want it to have in other people's minds. It's a, it, the, the, the power of your redemption is only as much as the accurate, uh, accuracy of which you're depicting the sin that they're redeemed from. And so consequently, it's a, it's a both and thing there. And that's the per- point of what I'm, what I'm stressing is, you know, if you're going to show the evil of the villain, you're going to show the sin, you're going to have a certain degree, something's got to turn your stomach. Why? Because that's the thing, that's the, the moral impulse in our hearts that move us to change and do something about it, right? So, you know, you, this is why a lot of these movies will, you know, um, I can't think off the top of my head or, or books, you know, that will tell a story based on something that's really like the child soldiers, right? Over, over in Africa, you'll see a story or like Blood Diamond. You remember that one with, uh, with, uh, Leo DiCaprio and it's about the, how they exploit uh, the people in Africa to get their diamonds. And it's a really great movie, but it shows the evils and wickedness that's going on. Why? Because that actually wants to alert us to do something about it. If we don't see how evil it is, we're not going to care to do anything about it. Well, because of that movie, Blood Diamond, there was a major change in the diamond market, in the sales of diamond market, because people were, would start to say, well, I'm of course, now we're talking rich people, but nonetheless, you know, they started saying, well, I'm not going to buy my diamonds from, you know, conflict areas like that, you know, that kind of a thing. So this is why the power of the storytelling, it will impact and change lives if it, if it shows it accurately in a way that, 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 uh, hits your sentiments, your moral sentiments. And sometimes that requires showing that evil in, in, in a, in a pretty explicit way. Yeah. And I said sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. 
So I want to get, uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to get back uh, to the villain uh, conversation r- real quickly. And I think um, one way that where this was done really well is in the Left Behind books. I, th- I felt they did a really good job with the Antichrist making him very charismatic. Like you want to like him. And right, he's, he appears on the scene as this humanitarian who's helping solve the problems in the world. And that is, that's what the Antichrist is like, right? He's not a mustache twirler. He seems like Christ, right? He seems like the good yeah. guy, but really there's a twist. There's a darkness and you, and you have to be vigilant of that. And so and just real quick, what are, what are some of the ingredients that you would say go, if you're cooking a dish and the dish is your villain, what are some good ingredients to use kind of to, as you're working on building that character? We already talked about like having a strong motivation, right? The villain's got to want something just like your protagonist has to want something. What are some other ingredients of making a good villain? I would say give the villain a worldview, a view, uh, a way of seeing the world that you disagree with, but you want to address as a storyteller, you know, that you want to help the world to see this is not the way to see the world, whether it's a humanist, an atheist, you know, whatever. I, you know, there's all kinds of worldviews out there that you can draw from, you know, um, and, and just the way they see the world and try to, and, but you try to be sympathetic and, and um, when you're writing your villain, try to uh, enter into the villain and write them fairly. Th- write the best version of that belief of the world. In other words, our tendency is, well, you know, like in some of these movies and I, Christian movies, and I won't name them, but you know, they'll have all the atheists are all bad people and they die and every, and they, and, and any other one gets converted, you know, that kind of a thing. No, no, actually try to make the atheists like, okay, f- this is a great example, you know, in the, in the beginning of the movie, Unplanned, which was a great story about that woman who, who was at Planned Parenthood and, and it's a pro-life movie. And, um, they start off the movie by showing the pro lifers being mean you know with you know ah shouting and you know cursing at the at the people going into the abortion clinic so so it's like you're going oh yeah you're kind of on the side of planned parenthood right and the woman who's the hero of the story she worked at planned parenthood and they tried to show her that she wants to help women she you know all this kind of stuff but then of course she's not the villain but she she changes her her view and all i'm saying though is when you're writing the villain try to do that Try to give them the same sort of sympathy that you do your, your hero so that it's, it's not as removed from reality and it's something that could actually be in the world. And that, that viewpoint then, um, as you're writing, try to show the logical, conclu- or the, not just the logical, but the, um, the con- ideas have consequences. So, so pick a, pick a worldview for your villain. Um, be as sympathetic as you possibly can for them and then try to act consistently with that way of seeing the world so that as they're fighting the hero, um, you'll want to have the best version of the opposing view that you, that you can. Don't make them the worst version. I want to make atheists look bad. No, have your atheist be the best strongest, smartest, kindest person you possibly can within that worldview, you know, and, and because the, the more you are honest about the humanity of all care, human, of all characters, the, the better your story will be, the more it will connect with people. So make them as human as possible. 
Yeah, the, the language that we would use in persuasion is don't create straw men. So straw man is a logical fallacy. If you're debating somebody, you represent their argument in a weak, especially weak way or an overstated way so that it's easier for you to defeat. And the problem with the straw man and defeating a straw man, whether it's in your story or in your nonfiction persuasion, is that it has less of a persuasive impact because the rebuttal is very easily, well, that's not what we're actually saying, right? You're not defeating their argument. You're defeating a shadow of their argument. And I'm an author who does a really good job of not creating straw men for his opponents is C.S. Lewis, both in his fiction and in his nonfiction, right? When he's portraying a worldview, like I'm thinking of the silver chair and you're there and you know, the witch is cast her spell. They're all drugged. And she's like saying, Oh, there's no such thing as Aslan. And they're like, yes, there is. And he's like, well, what is Aslan? It's like, well, it's like a cat. And she's like, you're just imagining the cat, right? And you've, you've created this bigger version of the cat, but the cat is what is real. It's like, that's a powerful argument, right? Like that is not a, a watered down argument. And yet it's wrong. <laughs> like, you know, from the yeah. story that it's 100% wrong. And when they defeat her intellectually and they defeat her physically, it's so much more rewarding having defeated the actual strong version of the argument than it is having defeated a strong man. Yes. And in the contravening sense, also bring out the weakness of your hero and let the, your hero lose in some aspects because no viewpoint is perfect, right? And if you're not honest enough to recognize the weaknesses of the, of the, of your own view or your hero's view, then you're also going to make him a straw man. So give the hero something weak, something wrong or weak in the way they see it or uh, be honest about those things which you're not sure and let them come out and let the hero lose or be wrong, shall we say, uh, in some aspect with, with the villain and give the villain, give them at least one or more, but at least one really positive element, no matter how bad they are. Like, for instance, you know, if you're going to have some gangster, you know, uh, you know, this gangster who's murdering people, but he doesn't, he doesn't kill kids or he loves kids and he protects kids, you know, give them something that, that will also show that no, you know, no one is completely, you know, so evil that they only want to do evil. There's always something good and that will humanize them more and make the story more interesting as well. All right. This is great. We're, we're just about out of time, but any final tips or encouragement when it comes to crafting good villains? <sighs> yeah. You know, just for me is, I, 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 I think that this understanding of worldview and understanding of how the villain and the hero both embodies a worldview and then realizing if you have a worldview of seeing things, you're going to behave a certain way. That helps you to discern how, how, what's my character going to do next? Well, what, what, what kind of person are they? What do they believe about the world? If they believe that everyone's, uh, everyone's after me, you know, everyone's selfish and after me, well, ten, those people tend to be themselves selfish and after after everybody else right or if they believe oh everyone's after me they're paranoid is well then how are they going to behave well they're going to actually um behave in such a way that will protect themselves from being hurt from other people so realize i guess is what i'm saying is you don't have to sit there and wonder what should i do next what you know, I guess, you know, I'm thinking of the, the writer's block issue that a lot of writers have. I, I don't ever really have that. Maybe certain, when I'm searching for a certain plot point that I need to accomplish, uh, I struggle, but, but I never have a problem with story because I understand that 
my hero and my villain both see the world in a certain way because of that, I give them that, that worldview, then I know the kinds of things they're going to be interested in, what they're going to go after and what they're going to go for based on the way they see the world. And the more you realize that, that worldview understanding, I think it can help you to write those characters. And if you're a st- st- story reader or watcher, you know, it's in reverse. It's like when you're watching the villain, look and see what is it that they believe about the world? What are they trying to accomplish that, 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 um, you know, cause they're, because they're not just all fully evil. What is the pseudo good that they're seeking? Because that you'll understand is that's going to be what the storyteller is want to, wants to address and wants to ultimately dismantle for you is the way they're seeing that world, you know? So, um, yeah, those big couple things. That's really good. Both Hitler and Stalin were both trying to create paradise on earth. Yeah. Right. Hitler was trying to create, you know, elbow space for the Germans and a prosperous, strong German state. And Stalin was trying to bring about the communist utopia where everyone was living the communist ideal. And yet, (laughs) and yet they were the two biggest villains or two of the biggest villains of the 20th century. Their good intentions led to the deaths of millions of people. And in, in many ways, it's, it's those good intentions that make them so dangerous. Because they think they have a righteous cause. Yes. And they're able to justify to themselves the evil that they're doing because they're doing the evil for a good end, right? And they're like, well, the end is justifying my evil means. And as Christians, uh, we have a different worldview (laughs) where we trust God with the ends and we are responsible uh, for the means. Uh, This has been a really fun conversation. I love talking about how to craft uh, better characters. So Brian Gadawa, where can people find out more about you? Gadawa.com, my name, Gadawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A. And I've got all kinds of cool stuff on there, my novels and free cool stuff. It's not a boring website at all. Um, I've got novels, biblical novels, as well as theological stuff, if you're interested in that, stuff about the arts. So uh, go there and you can find everything at that at that website. All right, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on The Christian Publishing Show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.